Well, good morning again to all of you. Uh, it's been a while since I've been here back at uh, this church on a Sunday morning in the pulpit. So I'm really glad to be able to minister to uh, all of you once again to be with my church family. Welcome also to our guests. There are a number of you who, uh, whom I don't recognize. Maybe it's because you're wearing a mask, but I think it's also because uh, it's your first time here. So welcome. We're, we're really glad to have you with us. And uh, to even have you with us on a communion Sunday, too. That's an amazing privilege that we have to get together to remember our Lord's death and to proclaim that he is coming again. Um, you know, it's, it's, it was a part of our, our regular rhythm of worship uh, to, to have communion, even in uh, the pandemic. But um, it's just it's something special about being here together uh, as a church body, reminding each other of these truths. Um, something that we might have taken for granted. Maybe, maybe you felt a little weird as you were at home, you know, eating crackers and having the juice, um, or if you forgot, you know, cookies and coffee. But um, it's just, what a blessing, right? What a blessing to be together as the family of God to, uh, to proclaim the Lord's death together and anticipate his return. Well, our sermon this morning is going to be found in multiple texts. As you can see from the title slide, uh, we're going to be studying forgiveness, forgiving one another. Um, and so uh, we'll, we'll start off with Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, Ephesians 4 and then uh, verse 31 to 32. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 to 32. The Apostle Paul writes this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also has forgiven you. Forgiveness can be a complicated thing for people. And when we make mistakes, when we do something wrong, and we know that we're going to get in trouble, we're going to experience the consequences for what we've done. It is very easy for us to want forgiveness, right? to desire forgiveness. It's very easy for us to want to make things right with other people. Because, again, we want to escape consequences. However, if the shoe is on the other foot, and we are negatively affected by the mistake or the wrongdoing of another person towards us, it is a lot more difficult to grant forgiveness because we're the ones who got hurt. Now, I'm not saying that you should just strive to be overly simplistic in your approach to forgiveness and that you're just forgiving everybody for everything, no matter what. We should be forgiving people, but it's a little more complicated than just forgiving others. Anytime that you are dealing with people and their sin, you're going to run into complications. And why do you think we have laws in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy all encompassing the minute details of what to do with sin? Because if it were really simple, all we needed were probably just the Ten Commandments, and we should just do it, right? But because sin makes things complicated, we actually have to, uh, 
have a broader view of how to approach different issues. Now, we know from the scriptures that we ought to be a forgiving people, but realistically, we also understand that sometimes it's not that easy to forgive. We know that the goal should be peaceful and friendly reconciliation. Right? That should always be our goal, but sadly, it's not always the case. This morning, our goal will be to study what the Bible teaches us about forgiveness so that we can refine our understanding of forgiveness, not from our point of view, not from our uh, vantage point, but from God's point of view. And in order to do this, our outline for this morning will look at two aspects of forgiveness that should motivate Christians to forgive one another. There are two aspects of forgiveness that should motivate Christians to forgive one another. Some of this is going to be review, but you're going to see why we're studying it uh, in just a bit. Right, so the first thing that we're going to look at is God's forgiveness towards us, followed by what should be our forgiveness towards other people. And I say should be because, well, we don't often do what we should. Okay, so uh, first, we're going to look at God's forgiveness towards us. God's forgiveness towards us. As we look at God's forgiveness towards us, many of you are probably tempted to yawn and think, man, Pastor Roger, forgiveness? Are you serious? Like, oh, come on, I, I've learned that in primary Sunday school. Why do I got to learn about forgiveness again? But the reason why we're covering such a basic thing is because our understanding of God's forgiveness towards us has everything to do with how we begin to think about how we should forgive other people. As we saw in Ephesians 4, 31 to 32, Paul's instruction on how to deal with bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice was not simply for Christians to just stop doing that, or just stop being angry, stop slandering, stop being bitter. It's not just the stopping of those sins, but on the contrary, we are to put on kindness. We are to be kind towards one another, and in that, have a tender heart towards one another. And in addition, we are to forgive one another, just as God has forgiven us in Christ. So you see, if we do not have a proper understanding of God's forgiveness towards us, we will struggle to show that forgiveness, that kind of forgiveness towards other people. So we're going to go back to the gospel. And our first subpoint that we're going to look at is our greatest problem our greatest problem. Now, you guys know, right? This is the typical Sunday school answer, right? Well, it is our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is sin. In Ephesians 2, 1 to 2, Paul tells us, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. See, when Paul tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he's obviously not talking about our physical death because, well, in order to read his letter, in order to hear his letter, we have to be alive, right? It's a given. So he's not talking about our physical condition, 
But when he's telling us that we're dead in our trespasses and our sins, he's, he's helping us realize that he's talking about our spiritual condition. Because of our trespasses, our, our violations of God's moral law, and our sins, our rebellion against God, we were spiritually dead. That is what we once were before salvation. We were spiritually dead. And verse 2 helps us understand that our spiritual deadness was not just a description of who we were, but our spiritual deadness describes our entire lifestyle. You notice that phrase, according to the prince of the power of the air, in verse 2. It's kind of a weird phrase. Right? What does that even mean? Well, that's what I thought when I saw it. And so I did some research. And basically that phrase, walking according to the course of this world, it's a Greek way. Or sorry, uh, walking according to the, the power of the air. It's a Greek way to refer to the spiritual forces of wickedness. Right? So if you backtrack a little bit, right, um, and, and we look at... Um, uh, walking according to the course of this world, right? Our lifestyle is characterized by the world, right? By worldly values as opposed to God's values. And Paul is making it clear when he talks about the prince of the power of the air to show us that the worldly values that we live by, they're not neutral. They're not neutral. They are at its core anti-God because... Because the power of the air, that's the spiritual forces of wickedness, right? So therefore, the prince of the power of the air is none other than Satan himself. The devil who continues to influence people and encourage them in their disobedience to do more so. Right? So our worldly lifestyle is not neutral. No matter how much you think you might be a good person and that you do good, good deeds, but if, even if you do good deeds, when you live according to the principles of the world, the values of the world, more than the values of God, you actually demonstrate yourself to be anti-God. Anti-God. Verse 3. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So Paul makes it clear that none of us lived a lifestyle that was pleasing to God on our own. We all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, the desires of our flesh. In 1 John, John tells us that all that is in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful, and the boastful pride of life. Any time that we engage in these kind of pursuits, right? and, and it doesn't have to be limited to, to sexual sin, right? but any time you engage in any of these pursuits where it's driven by the lust of what you see, right? the desires for what you see, the desires to, to build up yourself, right? the boastful pride of life, or even uh, the desires just to satisfy your own flesh, any time you pursue any of these things, you proved yourself to be, as Paul says here, children of wrath. Children of wrath. We chose to pursue our sinful lifestyles. 
whether they be sinful choices that we made in our thinking or sinful choices that we act upon. All of us have sin. In Romans chapter 3, 10 to 18, Paul helps us see that all of us, all of us are sinners. He writes this, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, even the most righteous person among us does not qualify as righteous in God's eyes. Because here we see, There is none righteous, not even one. All of us have sinned against God in one or more of these ways that Paul has just outlined for us. And as we return back to Ephesians 2, 3, it cements for us this reality that we are, by our very nature, by our very existence, children of wrath. That's what we deserve. That's what we deserve. Every single one of us has earned for ourselves God's wrath against all sin. And if that is not bad enough, there is nothing that we can do on our own to fix our condition. We are absolutely helpless. We are unable to do anything about our condition. But, but that is where the good news comes in. And this is where we see, sub-point B, God's solution. God's solution. Turn with me to Romans 5. Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps... For the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Christ saw us in our helpless condition and he knew that we could do nothing about it. And God saw that too. And so what did he do? Did he just leave us alone? He's like, well, it's your problem now, not mine. You got yourself into this mess, you figure it out. No, that's not what God said. That's not what he did. God sent us, Jesus, to help us deal with our greatest problem. Our sin. God intervened. He broke through into human history to save us through Christ. Through his son, and through his son's death on the cross, through his son's 
resurrection from the dead. Right? And if you think about it, right? and this is the thing that Paul's trying to get us to think about, what God did in sending us to Jesus Christ is absolutely unthinkable. It's really hard to put yourself in this situation and to actually think, yeah, I'll do that. We might be willing to put our lives on the line to save a loved one or to save someone whom we think is innocent. But it kind of takes a lot of thinking to get us to that point where we're willing to say, I will die for you. I'm willing to die for you. However, notice, Christ chose to die for us while we were yet sinners. And if you even uh, just briefly look down at verse 10, you'll see that we weren't just sinners. We weren't just sinners. We were still his enemies. We were still his enemies. Consider that for a moment. Let that sink in. Think about the person or persons whom you might consider your enemies. Whom you might consider your enemies. Or if you don't like to think of yourself as a person who has enemies, you you know you're above the rest of us and and uh, you're you're always kind and you have uh, have have no enemies. Well, think about the people with with whom you might have the most beef, the most resentment for, the most bitter feelings towards. If you knew that they were in trouble, would you put your life on the line for them? And even if you would think of yourself as that noble-minded, that you care about humanity more than you care about yourself, would you, would you be willing to put the life of your child on the line for your enemy or for your enemies. And furthermore, would you be willing to adopt this person or people into your family, following your child's sacrificial death on their behalf and treat them as your beloved child? That would be really tough to do, wouldn't it? But that is exactly what God did for us through Christ. Jesus died on the cross for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God, so that our broken relationship with him could not only be fixed, but be made completely new. But why? Why would he do this? Why would he do this? Well, let's, re- let's return back to Ephesians 2.7. Why would even Jesus have the idea, yeah, I would want to die on the cross for the sins of people. Why would he do this? Verse 7. So that in the ages to come, he, that is God the Father, might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God determined to show us the riches of his grace in Christ. And not just the riches. 
right? Not just a little bit, right? But the surpassing riches of his grace. He was determined to show us all that he had to offer. Though he is a God of justice, though he must judge sin, he is also a God of rich mercy and grace. God's kindness leads us to repentance. And not only does it lead us to repentance, but God's kindness towards us leads us to want to demonstrate that kindness, that forgiveness that we've been shown to other people. And so, if you're wondering why we're spending all this time reviewing the gospel in a sermon about forgiveness, it's because the gospel has everything to do with our motivation to want to forgive other people. If it were not for the forgiveness that we've been shown by God, we wouldn't understand how we ought to forgive others. And that is what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at this morning as we look at the second aspect of forgiveness that should motivate us to forgive one another, our forgiveness towards others. This should be our natural response once we've understood the forgiveness that God has forgiven us with. And so as we consider the more complicated aspects of forgiveness, we're going to break this down a little bit and we're going to look at what shapes our practice of forgiveness to others into two elements. The first element that influences our practice of forgiveness is our desire to imitate God's forgiveness, or we imitate God's forgiveness. Back to Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You notice as you look at that last phrase in the verse, it explains how we ought to forgive others. We are to forgive just as God in Christ also has forgiven us. So think back to the gospel. Think back to the forgiveness that has been given to us. Think back to the amazing grace that has been shown to us. When Paul says that we are to forgive others as God has forgiven us through Jesus Christ, that is absolutely game-changing. Think about it. When someone wrongs you, are you eager to forgive that other person just as God has forgiven you? Do you want to forgive them in the same way that God has forgiven you? You know, if we're being honest, we don't always want to show people forgiveness. But for some of us, it's not as if what we want is to keep that other person in the doghouse forever. However, what we could be more interested in is justice. I just want justice. A wrong has been committed, and I demand justice. I want things to be made right. I want to be proved right. I want for that other party to really feel what they've done to me. I want them to feel not just sorry, but I want them to really understand the depth of my hurt. And maybe this choice 
of not demonstrating God's forgiveness to others is uh, not something that you've done consciously or that you're actively choosing to be this way. But this could be something that you're just instinctively choosing to do. That's how strong our sense of justice is. If I have been wronged, if I have been sinned against, I must have justice. And while it's true, justice is important to God. Brothers and sisters, this is not how it should be if we are supposed to demonstrate God's forgiveness towards others in the same way that we have been shown forgiveness. In Matthew 5, 21... Jesus says this. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Just because We do not physically murder someone does not mean that we are obeying God's command for us not to murder. Jesus reveals to us here that the heart of the murderer and the heart of the one who hates his brother are the exact same heart. The only difference is that the one who murders acts upon the hatred that is in his heart. And the one who is simply angry just does not act upon that hatred. But it's the same heart. It's the same spirit. Because Jesus wants us to be different. He doesn't want us to be those walking around passively, aggressively hating the people in the church. He tells us, it's not good enough. It's not good enough for you to say, well, at least I didn't murder nobody. He's saying, no, no, no. If in your heart... You are angry with them. You are guilty of the exact same thing. Jesus' problem with us is not just centered on the behavior. We always focus on the behavior. But what is at issue here is the heart, the heart of the people, the heart of us, our heart. So because Jesus wants us in our hearts to be those who demonstrate his love and his kindness and his forgiveness towards others. And we have to work on what's going on in our hearts. We have to become more aware of what is going on in our hearts. And that's why we want to strive to be people who are at peace with one another. We want to prove through our interactions with one another that we love one another. Because Jesus reminds us that people will know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. So that's why he prioritizes peacemaking 
before someone comes to worship. Now, this doesn't mean that peacemaking is more important to God than worship, but it reminds us of the fact that God is so holy. God is so holy that he desires to be treated as holy by us when we approach him in worship. If we refuse to obey God's clear commands in the scriptures, but we're still coming to him in worship, thinking that nothing's wrong, I'm not guilty of anything, are we not like those who take communion wrongly as we disregard God's clear commands for us to be holy as he is holy and to treat him as holy? This is a bit of an aside, But when we talk about the importance of communion and why we examine ourselves, I think oftentimes we get so familiar with communion that we don't think deep enough about whether we are coming to the Lord in a worthy manner. We're just thinking about, hmm, what's the last major sin that I've committed? I definitely didn't murder nobody. I haven't lied, really. Uh, Maybe I got impatient, but they deserved it, so I guess I'm okay on that one. I was was trying to get to church on time, right? That's why I was impatient, so it's not that. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. And then we take communion. That's not taking sin seriously. That's not understanding the holiness of God and wanting to treat Him as holy because we're basically just kind of whitewashing our sins or or obscuring our sins. If we want to treat God as holy because he is holy, if we want to worship him and and be in awe of him with that heart attitude, then we really need to have a more serious look at ourselves. To have a more honest reflection of our own hearts and to see what is going on in here even before I come to worship. That's an aside, but the reason why I went there is because if we say that we love God, we want to strive to do our best to be at peace with other people because that's what he asks us to do. You're going to see that in Romans 12. Let's turn there, Romans 12. Romans 12, verse... 17 to 18, says this, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Forgiving one another, it is a two-way street. Right? They have, the other people that we're trying to reconcile with, they have to be willing to be at peace with us too. But, if we've done our very best to be at peace with them and they continue to choose not to be at peace with us, do not lose heart. Okay, do not lose heart. God knows that you've tried your best. He knows that you've tried your best. And he'll honor that. And this actually leads us to a somewhat tricky technical issue, if you will. A tricky question that we have to consider. 
If we are to forgive other people as God has forgiven us, in the same way that God has forgiven us, can we forgive someone who has not asked us for forgiveness? Can we forgive someone who has not asked us for forgiveness? And this is an important question for us to consider, especially because of the sometimes conflicting counsel that the world gives regarding this issue. And sometimes it comes from within the, our, very, our own church. Those who have been hurt by others are at times encouraged to just let things go and right? to forgive the person who hurt you, even if they've not asked for forgiveness because forgiving is therapeutic. Right? If you forgive, you'll feel much better about yourself. Are you supposed to forgive so that you can feel better about yourself? Anyway, that's a, that's a different issue. But right, that's not why we forgive. That's not, that's not why we forgive. And the answer to that question, can you forgive someone? If they don't ask you forgiveness, the, the short answer is no, you can't. And we draw this conclusion, and I know this might be shocking to you, to some of you. I'm going to show you my work, at least some of it. Um, we draw this conclusion from the following passages. Turn with me to 1 John 1, 9. 1 John 1, 9. It says here, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in order for us to be forgiven of our sins, we see that there must first be confession of sin. There must be a willingness to own up to the sins that we have committed, to agree with God that we are sinners and that we do need his forgiveness because our sins have driven a wedge between us and him. Right? And if we confess our sins, right? if we confess our sins, that's when John tells us, then God will be faithful. Right? God will be faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Right? When we ask God for forgiveness, when we recognize that we messed up and we ask him for forgiveness, God doesn't say, no, I'm not going to forgive you this time. Right? I don't feel in a forgiving mood today, so... No, you're not forgiven, right? He doesn't, he doesn't do that. God doesn't say, hmm, well, let me think about it. Like, let me, let me uh, settle down and, and let me think about it. He doesn't say, ah, no, maybe later. He doesn't do that, does he? Right? When we confess our sins to him, he is absolutely faithful, absolutely righteous to grant us that forgiveness of sin. But... Confession must happen before that transaction of forgiveness can be made possible. And if you're, if you're not convinced by that, turn with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter 3, 9. Peter writes here, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Our God is so 
patient towards us. He's so patient towards us. He doesn't judge people for their sins right away. He doesn't give us what we've earned in our rebellion immediately. But he is patient towards us, right? towards unrepentant sinners, giving them a chance to repent of their sins. And you know that it's not just a second chance. It's not a third chance. It's not just a fourth chance. But he's given people a lot of chances. Right? If you were to sit down and number the, all of the sins that you've committed ever since you know what was right and wrong, right? so probably about the age of two, right? if you were to sit back, sit, sit down and to, to think back and list out all those sins that you've committed, you can see how gracious and how patient God has been with you for your entire life. He's given us that many chances. And we see here, God desires our repentance. God is not sitting up in heaven and thinking, man, I can't wait till I can send all these people to hell. I can't wait till I just get rid of all of them, burn them in the fire, throw them into the lake of fire, and I don't have to deal with any of them anymore. That is not his heart. He desires for all to come to repentance. He gives us all a chance to come to repentance. And notice, though, even if that is his desire, or even though that is his desire, not if, even though that is his desire, he doesn't just grant forgiveness automatically, but just because he's a God of love. I mean, if that was the case, why would God have to be patient towards us at all? Or he just forgive us. Yeah, whatever, like, You've, you've sinned, sure, whatever. Forgiven, 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 forgiven. And why would he have to be patient towards us at all? Consider this, too. If God were to do that, right? if he were just to forgive us, even though we would never ask him for it, we would have a massive theological problem on our hands because you would have a bunch of forgiven people in hell experiencing the wrath of God that they've rightly earned for themselves for their sins. You have a bunch of forgiven people in hell. That's wrong. If that sounds wrong to you, it's because it is. It's unnatural. That's, that's just not right. Hell is not full of forgiven people. Hell is full of sinners who hate God and want nothing to do with him. And if there were, if there were a bunch of forgiven people in hell and they're suffering even though they've been forgiven, that is a miscarriage of justice, right? That would be a miscarriage of justice, right? And that's a big problem. So if God cannot grant sinners forgiveness without their request of forgiveness, we cannot either. However, okay, however, we can like God, be willing, be ready, and be able to forgive others if that offending party does ask us for forgiveness. Or you can put yourself in that spot to be willing to grant forgiveness. And, I'm not, and this is way different than forgiving someone in, in your heart. 
Because to forgive someone in your heart is to grant them forgiveness, though they've not asked for it. But to be willing to forgive means that you've already resolved in your heart, I am going to love you as God has loved me. And if you do ask me for forgiveness, I will gladly grant it. No hesitation. I will gladly grant it. Now, what if the offending party never asks for forgiveness? Well, we have two options. Okay, two options. The first option is that we can overlook sin and cover it with love. Turn with me a few chapters over to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4, verse 8. We're given the exhortation, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. When someone sins against us, Sometimes it can be really easy for us to just want to let them have it, right? to respond in kind, to assume the worst in that person. No, that person knows exactly what they did. They knew exactly what they meant. They knew that that is my personal pet peeve, and they're doing that on purpose to drive me nuts. Right? That's the temptation that we have. Right? But perhaps... Perhaps, if we're giving them the benefit of the doubt, maybe that person was having a bad day. Maybe ever since the alarm went off in the morning, there's been nothing but problems. Stub their toe, drop their coffee, car won't start. Who knows what it is? Perhaps, because they were in a rush, they forgot to take care of themselves, and so they're in a hypoglycemic rage because they're just cranky, they haven't eaten, their blood sugar's low. Maybe, maybe, they don't know how cutting their words actually are. Maybe they don't realize that some of the things that they do are actually invasive and offensive. Maybe the thing that we're mad about is not a sin issue, but it's more a violation of our own personal preferences. And in those cases, you don't need to confront the other person. In those cases, you can let love cover. You can let it go. Let love cover a multitude of sins. And you can determine to continue to love that person as God has loved you. However, what if what if we can't get over it? What if this is not a one-off incident, but it's a pattern of sinful behavior? Well, if we find ourselves in this spot, we could seek to lovingly confront and restore that person according to the principles of Matthew 18. But remember, whenever it comes to confrontation of sin, you're not just there to pull your Bible out, smack the other person upside the head and say, you're a sinner, stop doing that. Right? That's not what we're supposed to be doing. The whole purpose of confrontation is not to get whatever is bugging you off your chest. Right? The whole purpose of confrontation is out of love for that other person because you know that they can't see that they are sinning against God and others. Out of love, you're trying to help them see that what they're doing is wrong. 
Or you're trying to help them see their need for repentance, not only to the people that they've sinned against, but God also. Right? Loving confrontation and restoration. Restoration is always the goal. It's always the goal. However, however, okay, because I think some people, we, we love this idea of confrontation, right? Especially if we're like really justice heavy people. It's like, yes, confrontation. I love it. I love confronting people, right? Well, okay, before you can go and confront, you also have to abide by another principle. You have to Matthew 7 yourself. Right? Not determine whether you're a believer, but you have to Matthew 7 yourself in terms of checking your own heart for sin. Right? Checking your own heart for sin. Look at yourself. Examine yourself. Do you have a plank in your eye and you're obsessed, obsessed with the speck that is in your brother's eye? Right? Check your own heart to see if your sin is a part of the problem. Right? It takes two to tango. Is there any sin that we are responsible for that contributes to the culture of this relationship? Right? Is there any sin that we've contributed to this problem? Right? You want to own up to that. And again, as you're Matthew 7 yourself, it's a good idea to take the time to evaluate, is this really a sin issue? Hey, is this really a sin issue, or is it just that my personal preferences have been violated? Right? That's a good opportunity for you to cool the jets right? and see if love actually can cover. Now, that was the first option, right? Let love cover. Right? Uh, overlook sin and let love cover. The second option is you can overcome evil with good, and then you can entrust yourself to God. Right? Overcome evil with good and entrust yourself to God. Essentially, this is the principles uh, that we find in Romans 12, 19 to 21, that um, we leave vengeance up to the Lord. We remember that vengeance is his. He will repay. And instead of trying to achieve justice on our own, we determine, we determine to do good to our brother right? and let God take care of it. We, want, we should want... We should want for people to repent, just like God wants for people to repent. But if they will not repent of their sins, if they will not own up to their faults, then the only thing that you can do is just to leave it up to the Lord. And Jesus sets the perfect example for that. In first, we see that example in 1 Peter 2. Peter frames it this way. He says, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. If Jesus can endure being sinned against while he was on the cross, entrusting himself to God to make things right, then we can also. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm saying we can, though. Now, before you get to this stage of saying, well, God, vengeance is the Lord's, he will repay, right? before you get to that stage, you have to make sure, right? you have to make sure that you don't just automatically jump to this point, right? that you automatically think, eh, well, you know what, do I want to forgive him? Eh. <laughs> I'm just going to let God repay. 
Right? It's, it's easy for us. It's natural for us to just be like, yeah, God, punish this person. Right? Discipline them. Let them feel your wrath so that I can be justified. Right? It's really easy for us to jump to that point. But our love for them as our sibling in Christ should motivate us to forgive, should motivate us to have their best interest in mind. Right? And to not jump immediately into, God, it's your turn you need to discipline them now. Right. A lot of this that we're talking about in terms of forgiveness, it's done within the context of the church, but it can have some carryover to our interactions with unbelievers as well. But the bottom line here is that what we want our forgiveness to look like is God's forgiveness. Right. We want our forgiveness to look like God's forgiveness. We want to be like Christ, even when the conflicts rage. And that leads us to the second element that ought to influence our practice of forgiveness. Is that we ought to commit ourselves to forgiveness. We need to have a commitment to forgiveness. Once our Lord has forgiven us, the sin that we've committed is no longer counted against us. As we sung earlier in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. God has removed it, removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Right? That's an infinitely separate chasm. That's how he has forgiven us. We also see in Psalm 130, verse 3 to 4, that if God should mark, if he should keep track of all of our sins, who could stand? Who could stand if God held up our track record against us? None of us could stand, but there is forgiveness with our God. There is forgiveness with our God. And so if we're going to forgive like he forgave us, we have to be committed to forgive just like he is committed to forgiving us. And that means that there are some principles that we must abide by. Ken Sandy, the author of an excellent book called The Peacemaker, summarizes those biblical principles of forgiveness as four forgiveness promises. Number one, I will not dwell on the incident. Number two, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. And number four, I will not let this incident stand between us or get in the way of our personal relationship. When you look at these four forgiveness promises, if you have not already gotten the sense that forgiving other people God's way is difficult... These four promises make it even clearer that forgiving other people God's way is not an easy task. It's not an easy task, but it's one that you can do through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. All of us, all of us have violated at least one of these promises, if not all of them, at some point in our lives, right? How many times have we told someone, we forgive you? We forgive them. But then we continue to think about what happened. 
We replay the incident again and again and again in our minds, over and over again. And then as a result, we allow for anger and bitterness to continue to grow in our hearts, to continue to fester, so that if anyone brings up the name of that person or something that they've done that bothers us, we jump right in and we're like, yeah, let me tell you about this guy. And how many, how many times have we, in our anger, during, it, during the course of an argument, brought up the sins of another person that have already been forgiven? Right? And, and we bring it up not because we're trying to be nice. Right? We're bringing it up because we're trying to wound them. Right? Do you remember that what you did to me back in 2002? Do you remember that? And while we're on the subject, I still can't believe that you stole all my toys in 96. Right? We bring things up to wound people. Right? That's just, we, this is what we do. This is just human nature. Right? How many times have we vented to other people who, by the way, are not a part of the solution, so you are gossiping, right? How many times have we vented to other people about an incident in the past that continues to bug us? How many times will our personal grudges against a person continue to color the way that we view them and the way that we treat them? That, That whenever we see them, we respond to them with coldness with shortness, or any other manifestations of bitterness. Right? Those are natural human reactions to wrongs and hurts. But if we are to forgive as God has forgiven us, then we must commit ourselves to the process of forgiveness, no matter how hard it may be. Because we want to demonstrate in our forgiveness how much we understand the greatness of God's forgiveness towards us. So in conclusion, this morning we had the opportunity to examine two aspects of forgiveness that should motivate Christians to forgive one another, God's forgiveness towards us and our subsequent forgiveness towards others. And while we've learned a lot about forgiveness and some of the nuances to forgiveness uh, this morning uh, and just how difficult it can be, I understand that forgiving other people can be a lot trickier than what we've covered, than the scenarios that we've covered this morning. And despite the fact that forgiveness can be more complicated when we apply it to the situations in our lives, we cannot escape the fact that God wants us to be forgiving people. I understand that forgiveness is not always easy. And we may probably encounter situations in our lives where the hurt seems too deep for forgiveness to occur, at least right away. And that's okay. And that's okay. We're not like God yet. Okay, we're going to struggle to forgive others. But if we continue to struggle, if we get stuck and we're not willing to forgive, then we can't stay there. Right? We can't allow ourselves to stay there. And so let me offer you um, some ways that we can get some help. God's provisions for growing in forgiveness. 
we can pray to God. We can pray to God and ask for him to help us put on his heart for other people. We can pray that the Lord would bring people into our lives that can help us get unstuck with our unwillingness to forgive other people. And this next one is probably one of the most important things that we can do. We can study what the scriptures have to say about forgiveness. Do a Bible study on forgiveness. Understand all that the scriptures have to say about forgiveness and see that we don't actually have loopholes. We don't have a lot of loopholes, if any. And then read some Christian books on forgiveness. And the reason why I emphasize study the scriptures first is because most of you are probably going to be tempted to do the last thing first, right? To read the books rather than to study the scriptures. Study the scriptures first. The books will help you understand and elaborate more on some of those nuances. But study the scriptures first because that is our source of authority, right? The scriptures are sufficient, right? Not the Christian authors are authoritative in and of themselves, right? But that being said, I really do like these two books, Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Bronze and The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. God has not left you alone in this world to figure this all out on your own, but he's given you provisions in Christ to grow in this area. He's given us the church. He's given us his word. And with his help, we can be a more forgiving people. Let's uh, pray, and then we'll sing in response to these truths that we've just um, studied. Father, we are grateful to you for the forgiveness that you've shown us. And Lord, we understand that this forgiveness that you call us to is incredibly difficult to put into practice because of the sin in our own hearts and even just the fact that it can just be really, really difficult to die to self, to be willing to treat our sins seriously. We pray, Father, that even though uh, some of this was review, that, Lord, we would strive to, that we would strive to really apply the truths that we've learned today, to really meditate on these truths and to apply it so that we can be forgiving people. Thank you, Father, for uh, this time that we could study your word in your sons, and we pray. Amen.